The views expressed on this program are solely those of the speaker and do not reflect the views and opinions of Centennial Securities. Be reminded that this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Happy Friday! Welcome to the Weekly Investment Podcast, where we discuss the week's must-know investment news and how it affects your money. I am your host, Walter. With the recent high-profile failures in the banking industry, I am very excited for this week's interview. Our guest on the pod today is Brian Cox, CFA. Brian was an FDIC bank examiner during the Great Recession of 2008-2009. He worked at GE's financial arm, GE Capital, where he conducted deep fundamental credit analysis, leading to over $3 billion in debt investments, as well as consulting on bank regulatory issues. Currently, Brian is the founder and managing director of Tier 1 Strategy. Tier 1 provides strategic advisory to banks and financial technology companies regarding, amongst other things, their products, operational processes, and asset liability management. Trust me, our guest has some choice words for the management decisions that led to the demise of SVB and Signature Bank. I have known today's guest for over a decade now, And one of the things that I've always appreciated about Brian is that he grew up on a cattle farm where Missouri, Kansas, and Oklahoma meet. Brian's upbringing has given him a simple, straightforward, and down-to-earth perspective at looking at the financial world. More of that, please. You'll hear the terms GAP and duration used in this podcast. GAP is an acronym for generally accepted accounting principles, which is the accounting standard adopted by the Securities and Exchange Commission and is the default accounting standard used by most companies based in the United States. Duration refers to how sensitive an investment is due to changes in interest rates. Bonds that take longer to mature have a greater duration, so a bond portfolio that has high or long duration holds predominantly long-term bonds. Okay, let's crack right into the interview. Hi, Brian. Welcome to the pod. Thank you for being on the whip. Yeah, thanks, Walter. Really appreciate it. Given the turmoil with some banks, from your perspective, how healthy is the banking system right now? In general, banks are very healthy due to the fact that usually credit is the issue that comes in and starts making banks unstable. Anybody who lives through the the great financial crisis, 08 and 09, this is nothing like that. When a bank has a credit problem, there's nothing you can do about it. A liquidity problem is usually something that you can solve as long as you're structured correctly. These recent bank failures, to be perfectly honest with you, this isn't a crisis by any means. It's more of a kerfuffle kind of exposed some of the worst balance sheets and probably horrible management teams. Silicon Valley Bank should get an award sent to their management team because 
they blew that bank up in 24 hours. So outside of those banks that have these significant mismatches on the balance sheets, which really echoes the 1980s, which is the savings and loan crisis, which was exactly the same kind of thing that happened. Savings and loans had 30-year assets on their books. As the price of deposits went up, those assets didn't increase in price, and then they got upside down, and then that's what caused the failures. And it's kind of the same thing here. It's just there was no credit risk. They, they just got everything out of whack. You mentioned a bank being structured properly. What was it about Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, and First Republic Bank's structure that led to their demise? Silicon Valley Bank is probably the easiest one. and I look at them as the canary in the coal mine. You had Bear Stearns blow up in 08, and that was more so of a early tell because they were worse off, and so they went down fast. And I see that with Silicon Valley. Their structure was that they had a huge sum of their investments in long-term treasuries. Basically what happens, when all the money came in during COVID, there was excess swell of deposits that came into banks. And if you were thinking about it, you wouldn't want to go out and take on long duration, which would be buying a longer-term fixed income asset. Because if you're at zero interest rates, you're going to go into a rising interest rate environment. And so when interest rates go up, bond prices go down. And so primarily, you usually want to stay short. Well, they probably were wanting to try to make earnings or make a larger spread. They got greedy. And whenever the rising interest rate environment started coming up, it really started depleting the value of those bonds. And I think they had about a 20% unrealized loss in that. In banking and everything else in the world of GAAP, if you classify those as held to maturity assets, it doesn't hit your regulatory capital and it, it doesn't even get marked on your balance sheet where if you have it as available for sale, it'll flow through and it'll hit your equity calculation. And really at the end of the day, no one paid attention to it because analysts are pushed to find investments. And if every bank has this kind of a loss on their balance sheet, everybody kind of ignores it. And then they're just looking at earnings power. Well, SVB decided to realize the loss and restructure their bond portfolio where they'd earn back the loss in three years. But what they did is when they took that loss, they made everybody remember that that's a real loss. And then the problem on Silicon Valley was you look at the rest of the unrealized losses and they were insolvent. Majority of the banks are not structured that way. They just have, you know, a, a hit to the balance sheet, but they'd still be solvent. Well, SVB was not solvent after that. And that's whenever the venture capital people started getting a little excited because when you do the calculation, it's not a solvent bank. And then you start going down that chain reaction. And it's basically like it's a wonderful life where everybody runs to the door and wants their money out. And in any banking operating environment, if you get to a place where fear starts happening, doesn't matter what kind of balance sheet you have or what kind of banking model, because the whole idea behind a bank is you take short-term liabilities and you fund long-term assets. So if your short-term liabilities walk in and say, hey, we need our money today, and all of them come in at the same time, it folds the bank. And Silicon Valley had deposit concentrations in the forms of they had a lot of money that was over the insured limit, which usually makes those more volatile assets, which is why the venture capital firms called their portfolio companies and said, get the money out of there because 
if you have $10 million in an operating account and you're insured for 250000 it doesn't matter if it's a rumor or if it's true. You don't leave $10 million in there because you feel like it's the right thing to do. You move the money because that's how you practice risk management and corporate treasury works. I think that's a longer answer there, but that's kind of the, the whole scenario, I guess. Your canary in the coal mine analogy suggests there are potentially further issues in the industry. How concerned should investors be about mismanagement at other banks? Banks have an unrealized loss in their bond portfolios right now, but it's not to the magnitude that Silicon did where it was basically their whole balance sheet and it made them insolvent whenever you looked at that unrealized charge. Bank of America's prime example, they've got an unrealized loss in their held to maturity portfolio, but it doesn't render the bank insolvent. They're working through the environment that it is. And I mean, whenever you've had 10 years, real, just kind of boring interest rates, through our whole lifetime, we've never really had where interest rates have been forced to rise to counteract inflation. So bank management teams, people go to sleep at the wheel. They forget what risks are. You know, eventually, 15, 20 years from now, We'll probably have people forgetting about possible pandemics. I mean, I never wrote a pandemic scenario where you shut down because of a virus. I remember we were buying New York City transit bonds, and that was one of the things we said. Well, they're never going to shut down the New York subway, so we're pretty comfortable about getting paid back. Well, then they shut down the New York City subway. So, I mean, you know, it just depends on what us as investors have in our, you know, our, our memory that impacts us to manage risk and uh, make decisions. Could you please explain how the Fed's bank term funding program provides a backstop for banks? That kind of removes that liquidity risk. So if you think about it, right, if you have, um, let's just say, $100 million worth of liabilities and $100 million worth of assets, right, and just start out one-to-one. If you have, say, you know, let's just say we put all $100 million of that in bonds, and if all of a sudden you have interest rates go where you lose 20% of your value on that. Then you have $80 million worth of assets and $100 million worth of liabilities still. So in, in most banks where you don't have large concentrations of deposits, and, and from concentration to deposit, there's different ways to categorize it, right? So you could just say with SVB, there were a fewer number of depositors and there was a larger total sum that was uninsured, right? So if it makes it where it's more of a perfect storm to make more deposit flow out. Because if you have a lot more depositors, low dollar amounts, it takes more as a percentage of just total depositors to pull out their money to start really impacting the bank. With SVB, it just moved faster. So, and with that, more people were pulling out money to get to that full liability pullout scenario. So let's just say hypothetically, if you pull out all $100 million, well, SVB could only fund $80 million without having another form to do it. So they'd be $20 million short, which would, you know, fold the bank right there if you just had a bank run and you didn't have, you know, any other scenario running through there. With the Fed backstop in place, they said, you know, we'll, we'll loan out whatever book is on it, par. So they, they took that 20% gap that some of these banks would have had if people started really wanting their money. They, they just removed that. So they kind of removed the whole issue of, well, we've got a loss on our treasuries portfolio, so we don't really have the borrowing capacity that we used to have whenever we bought treasuries. Um, so yeah, it, it kind of fixed the problem that SDB ran into on that scenario. The, the one thing that it doesn't fix, which always makes, would make me nervous if I was, uh, you know, investing in banks 
of that stature is I don't want to be in a bank that's in the headlines because that's, that's the thing you can't bracket that risk. You know, like First Republic's been in the headlines ever since everybody else failed. So, you know, that's why I wouldn't want to be in there because a bank failure is more so um, perception versus reality. Most of the problems where the bank is like absolutely defunct and failed, public doesn't even know about it. It's just the, you know, the FDIC or the regulators in there and sometimes they find fraud. And then the next day the bank's failed because it turns out the balance sheet was totally fraudulent. They didn't have any capital and tomorrow we failed a bank, you know, or it's something where we know there's a credit problem happening within the portfolio. It's slow. The FDIC can plan out 30 days. We can be running bids in the background and then we can fail the bank on a Friday and we can open it, you know, on a Monday and everything's already been transferred deposits wise and everything like that. Whenever the deal like SVB happens where the FDIC has to open the bank, as a you know a standoff federal charter where the FDIC is actually the management team, that's whenever things happen very drastically and it's more of a bank run, you know, fear-based kind of thing. Let's stay on this point for a moment. Clearly, mismanagement led to SVB's long-duration bond portfolio. But if the BTFP provides a guarantee of par value on those long-dated bonds, did the Fed inadvertently create a long-term risk management problem? Another way to ask that is, what is the disincentive for bank managers to be mindful of their bond portfolio's duration? So you've got the banks that had problems, and with the banks that had problems, well, it was, it was kind of a godsend for them to be able to draw liquidity on that 20% because they were having more depositors walk out. They just need a little bit more liquidity to be able to fund that. Well, the other guys that aren't in the news, they just got another, you know, they got that 20% back on their bond portfolio and they can go leverage it up if they want. So they can pull on the Fed line again for another 20% and go lend that onto the street, you know, in their loan book. If it's a, you know, smaller, not even in the news kind of super regionals, I'd say more of your a billion and down, two billion and down, smart bankers that are looking, you know, they can draw right there off of that treasury portfolio that they have sitting there and then put more money on the street working to kind of backstop those deposits that are bleeding out. So when I hear that, oh, this is going to stifle lending, maybe in the larger banks that are being focused on by analysts, but in the more Main Street America, I think it really opened up more opportunities for community banks to be able to put more money on the street to fix their liquidity problem. What regulatory lessons can be learned from SVB's failure? Well, I mean, I wouldn't say that these guys avoided regulatory view or anything like that. I mean, because a bank that size, you have a regulatory team in-house all the time. I, I mean, I do a lot of asset liability management consulting, and asset liability management and asset liabilities management models are very complicated things when you think about the structure of a bank and everything that moves around in it with interest rates and everything to that regard. There's a lot of moving pieces and a lot of it's just projection scenarios and inputs that go in, bad inputs equals bad results. And a lot of people don't have the staff or the expertise to be able to interpret or manage it. And you can see that from small banks all the way up to gigantic banks. And, and you can even put that into, you know, I used to work at GE Capital and GE Capital when they had to pull data they would go down to loan uh, managers to input into a spreadsheet individually and then roll that all the way up to the headquarters to be able to run stuff. 
you know, the data within large banks is just garbly goo together and people just slap things on reports and keep going. So I would say that, you know, they apparently SVB got flagged by the regulators that they had some issues with their asset liability, which comes into CAMELS ratings, which is how, you know, regulators rate the risk of all banks as sensitivity and market risk. Sensitivity and market risk and liquidity are two of the most gray things. They're very subjective. They're not quantitative. Um, it's totally different than running through a bank's loan portfolio and saying you've got an asset that the appraised value is 100 and you have 150 million lent on it. We're saying you have a 50 million gap on this loan. You can't do that in sensitivity market risk. So I, I would just say that given the fact that asset liability management in a lot of terms comes with risk management that may never come to fruition, we've got regulations on the books already to handle this stuff. It's just maybe we need to have um, staff that's a little bit more educated or that's allowed more time to work on that because it's hard to have a conversation with the banker when you think, I mean, I had one with the regulators the other day for some folks and it, it's just, it's hard to try to grind someone down on a projection because you don't know what's going to happen in the next 12, 24 to 36 months. These kinds of things pop up when you just have a really good management team. And, and what I always look for in a bank management team is the guys that are looking at the things that might not happen, but, if it happened, it could cause us a problem and constantly poking at their business model to just try to see if there's any little explosions that blow up. That's what, that's what at GE Capital, we ran scenarios constantly on what if we got downgraded another rating and there was no talk that we would be getting downgraded, you know, or anything like that, but it was, what would explode if that happened? And then we'd see where the weak spot was and we'd change it. I find it really hard to think that you have an asset liability management model where if you just take the duration of your fixed income assets on treasuries and you shock it up 300 basis points, I'm pretty sure they would have saw a mounting gap that would have jumped out there. But that gap would have never even hit their earnings because of gap accounting. So it really gets down to the spirit and the letter. Does the management team just want to live within gap? Or do you want to be more like Warren Buffett and say, I don't really care what the accounting jargon is telling me on this. Just back up and look at it simplistically. We lose 20% of our value. Is that good or bad for the bank? Would that hinder our ability to react in a crisis scenario? That's kind of the way I would look at it. I couldn't agree more regarding the bank's management team. A couple of interesting items in your response that caught my attention. The larger the bank, potentially the more complex and dynamic the assets and liabilities that it holds, and so the harder it is to quantify risk, particularly in the volatile market. Internal bank analysts maybe don't have the expertise, regulators don't have the time, or are using a different set of parameters when assessing that risk. Pardon the pun, but investors can only bank on the quality of a bank's management team. Yeah, I, I think so. And I think it's also the culture. You know, uh, my dad worked yeah. for a very large state bank. And I remember they sent out mugs that said, you know, our credit loss will be 0. 0.009. And he said it was a credit culture. You did not make a loan that could go bad, you know, and then it was it was just ingrained in people. And I think SVB, I'm not familiar with them for interaction or anything like that. But yeah, they grew significantly. They sold the story on the street. Oh, we have this unique business structure, which really, if you want to make money in, in banking, you need to find a niche. Because if you do plain vanilla stuff, you make plain vanilla returns, 
But at the end of the day, they said our niche is VC. And with this makes it where our deposits are a little bit more lumpy. We get money as these funds raise and then we make loans. You know, that was their model. And, and so they grew so significantly so fast. Most of the time when you see that, there's chances for things just not getting put together. It just really depends on your management team to stay on top of that and to be constantly looking from an internal view of making sure you grew at the right pace. And sometimes you got to hit pause and you got to make sure everything's structured back correctly. It's a problem with public markets. Some management teams, all they care about is earnings and meeting the analyst expectation instead of truly trying to grow the business the correct way. And sometimes you have to take your medicine. Speaking of taking medicine, the economy is taking its medicine right now in the form of higher interest rates. To what extent should Fed rate policy consider the turmoil in the banking industry? So I'm an FDIC guy, right? And in the world of FDIC, we are a mechanism that are put in place to resolve and fail bad banks. And so my viewpoint, as I would say probably a lot of FDIC folks' viewpoint is that if a bank management team is not operating correctly and they've messed up, I have no fear in the banks failing because we've got a system in place to knock it out. I would not say that the Fed needs to back off on rates just because some people didn't understand how rising interest rates caused bonds to go down. I would say that capital allocated within that bank has been misallocated and it should have got wiped out a long time ago. I have a much more hard viewpoint on that kind of stuff. But no, I, I don't think the Fed needs to change anything because this is not a banking crisis. What needs to happen with this is as depositors, you know, I don't have any deposits in banks that are uninsured. And so even if I hear tomorrow news came up about a bank that I had money in, I wouldn't lose a, you know, a minute of sleep over it because I've kept my money right. I, I heard where SVB had one guy that had $10 billion in one bank account. I mean, my goodness, that is just lazy. If you have all your money and it's not insured and you, you know, I don't have that problem, 10 billion, but you know, that's just, that's ridiculous. And so I think that the market, you know, people need to learn about FDIC insurance because if you're if you're managing your money correctly, there there shouldn't be opportunities for bank runs due to fear because, you know, you're not over the insurance limit. You know, my thing is the Fed needs to be focused on inflation and I I've kind of I think that what would be worse is if you get the Fed to pause and then inflation comes back in the summer, you know, that's where I would see that there's more risk. So I would say the Fed needs to focus on inflation. This banking crisis, we'll put, you know, air quotes around that. That's not what it really is. It just made really good news headlines right now. I agree that the Fed should stick to its dual mandate of price stability, i.e. keeping inflation in check and maintaining full employment. One final question regarding the banks. What did you make of the effective bailout of depositors at SVB and Signature who had money above the FDIC insurance limit? The regulators just freaked out for no real reason because SVB made it where fear was spreading too fast and they just decided they wanted – because the way they did that is they encroached some stuff that was in the Dodd-Frank and they, you know, systemic and everything like that to make it work. In my opinion, it, they shouldn't have bailed any of the folks out. I mean, this is this is how you learn, and it gets ingrained in society of what FDIC insurance. I, I feel like that people have to take an active role with their money, 
And I mean, we were on the side of what actually happens when a bank fails. And, you know, I've been there where you have to talk to somebody and walk them through the insurance calculation and why they have their money that's uninsured in the bank. That's not an easy conversation and you feel bad for the people. But at the same time, you know, the FDIC fund is not limitless. So there's reasons that it is what it is. And yeah, I think Silicon Valley, that was, if you go through and you fail that bank, right, and you had these companies that had their total payrolls in that bank that were overinsured, you probably could get a little bit of cascading possible bankruptcy that happened in the state of California from that. Because think about it, SVB fails, deposits are not insured. So you get access to $250,000 on Monday and the rest of it's an FDIC insurance certificate that could take, you know, three years or whatever to pay back. And you're probably going to get 70 cents on your dollar. Technically speaking, you could take that certificate and you could try to get a loan off somebody to be able to make your payroll, but you might have these tech companies that are based in California go bankruptcy on that. So I think they got put in a weird box there, but I don't really feel like it's the government's responsibility to do that. Once again, any corporate treasury team that allowed for $10 million to be in their account in a small regional bank, that's silly. And people say, well, it was part of the loan agreement. I, I understand that, but in your loan agreement, you can bring up the fact that you want the deposit collateralized. You know, there's mechanisms in the marketplace. Insure FDIC insurance. Point taken and well made. But just to play Deadpool's advocate, did the Fed pay $300 billion to shore up the system and prevent a further crisis of confidence and bank runs at similarly sized institutions? Basically, was it a $300 billion bet that avoided further billions or trillions of dollars in FDIC claims? Really, at the end of the day, if you go back to 2009, it's just a totally different world, right? Like when I used to get on a plane or I used to go in somewhere and I'd show my badge, people thought I was the FBI, right? And then you started having the great financial crisis and then everybody knew what the FDIC was. And that's kind of how it works. People forget all about it and then something will happen and people know what it was. And at the end of the day, when Lehman failed, still were able to swallow up Lehman and process it. It caused some problems, but we were able to do it. But on this, with social media, it makes it where people can, it allows people that really don't have an educated viewpoint, the ability to get up and scream bloody murder. And people are like, cow. And you get herd mentality going, and it really doesn't matter if it's true or not. You don't want to be the sucker that left your money in there and you lose it. With the way that it was kind of moving in the market, even though SEB wasn't that big of a deal or anything, it was catching a lot of headlines. So I think the way that they have to do it is just like the FDIC did during the great crisis. They said, you know, all commercial deposits in banks are fully insured. So that made it where businesses that had, you know, over 250000 in the bank are fully insured. And that made everybody calm down. So I think they were just trying to – it's easy to Monday quarterback this stuff, right, because – if, if they didn't do it, then we'd be saying, oh, why didn't they just step in there and say all deposits in the United States are insured? And that just calms everybody down. So, you know, maybe they did a really good job by, by saying that, you know, or they could have failed SVB and said these uninsured deposits are uninsured, but now all, you know, deposits are insured in the banking structure right now or something like that. There's different ways to do it, but you do have to, like we said, it's perceptions reality on that deal. So once that, machine starts running, you, there's only one way to stop it, and the FDIC has to come out and say, we're going to back everything. This is a good place to pause the conversation. Let's come back in part two 
We'll talk about opportunities in the market right now, how you feel about treasuries, given the debt ceiling standoff, and touch on a couple other investment-related questions. Yeah, for sure. I'd love to. Thank you, Brian, for making time for this conversation. Great, great time today. I really enjoyed the conversation, and yeah, it was, it was a pleasure. You're probably wondering why we're having a former bank examiner and current bank consultant back on to discuss investment-related opportunities. That's because last year, Brian Cox CFA also started his own hedge fund. Brian and I have been bouncing investment ideas off each other for as long as I can remember, and I think that you'll enjoy that part of the conversation. Next week, we'll pick up part two with Brian Cox CFA. Join us next Friday for that and much, much more. Thank you for listening, and please have a nice weekend when you get there. Talk to you next week. Thank <laughs> you.